welcome to Saltier Politics this week. We have a great show for you with former Deputy Assistant Secretary of State under President Obama on. Um, Joel Rubin, yeah, and he's got a bunch of great insights about uh, what's going on with the world these days under President Trump's regime. Um, I thought a lot of very, very interesting thoughts on, on the Middle East and North Korea and my favorite topic, the crazy Russia situation. Um, so, and also very interesting conversations about morale at the State Department and what career State Department people, not political appointees, but, but real career Foreign Service people um, feel these days working under Secretary of State Mike Pompeo and under President Donald Trump. Um, I thought it was a great conversation and I'm really excited that people get to listen to it. So without further ado. Joel Rubin, welcome to Saltier Politics. We are thrilled to have you here. Joel is President Obama's former Assistant Secretary of State, as well as a former Democratic congressional candidate. Awesome. Thank you, Julie. Thanks, Emily. Really um, appreciate you having me. Joel, can we just start off um, with the thing that's been driving me absolutely insane, which is that every time somebody accuses Donald Trump of being a racist, which I feel like is every day for good reason, um, he pivots to Democrats are anti-Semites because they hate Israel. Can you... Um, Talk a little bit about that, since you've got a foreign policy background, you worked at the State Department. Um, does that drive you as nuts as it drives me? You know, I I, I am I'd rather stick my head in the blender some days than uh, than hear more tweets about anti-Semitism and and uh, how Democrats are anti-Semites. Uh, but the president loves to use it as as a political weapon. And uh, I I'm Jewish American. I've lived in Israel and been active in Jewish political work uh, in Washington and and, and uh, around the country. And the last thing uh, one who knows the Jewish community and the Democratic Party and Democratic politicians would say is that, that they're anti-Semitic. But th- there are different views about Israel policy, certainly. But I, I really think the president is, is using that language, using the the, uh, the the race baiting language, as well as a, a clear political weapon for a strategy to win in, in 2020. And it's, it's very damaging. What I find interesting is if you oppose the Netanyahu government, you're immediately an anti-Semite. There's, there's absolutely no, yeah. there's no distance between what your legitimate views may be about the foreign and domestic policies of the Israeli, current Israeli government and your affection for the state of Israel or your worth as a Jew, it's kind of, to me, that's a very anti-Semitic in its own way because obviously, first it implies that Jews have allegiances to a country not their own. Um, and secondly, it implies that uh, if unless you're in lockstep with a right-wing Israeli government, you're not pro-Israel. And, and it's interesting that nobody accused Donald Trump of being anti-American when he went around trashing the Obama administration. Uh, and yet, and yet, he's basically doing that to anybody who has any kind of discrepancy with the Netanyahu government. Well, well, this is the guy who remember at a, a Republican Jewish coalition event uh, during his campaign in 2016 said, "I don't want your money. I don't want your money." Basically, you Jews are good with money, which is an extraordinarily anti-Semitic uh, comment. And and to your point, though, Julie, the the idea that if you don't support the Netanyahu government means you're an anti-Semite means that half of Israelis would be anti-Semites too. Right. Because he he's not dominant in Israeli politics. He, he wins by a bare faction. But there's been an ongoing effort for a number of years amongst uh, very right-wing Israeli politicians and very right-wing 
factions in the Jewish community here in the United States to use Israel as a political cudgel to try to gain votes and gain donors. And uh, what they've done effectively is try to destroy the bipartisan consensus in the pro-Israel community here in the United States that supports Israel broadly and that brings in Democrats and Republicans that we've seen traditionally for decades. Uh, that's broken now. People still support Israel, but the bipartisanship around it is just not the same. And for uh, for politicians to use hate speech, to use false accusations of anti-Semitism in order to gain particular niche votes or niche supporters uh, really implies that they care more about themselves than the actual people and policies that they're, they're supposed to be in charge of. Um, you, you worked at the State Department, obviously, when the Iran deal was being negotiated and implemented. What do you make of what's going on right now? Do, are we setting our own goals back by abrogating this treaty or this deal? I mean, there's so many layers of, of hypocrisy in the Trump administration approach, which uh, is, is frustrating. But the, the big picture in this is that uh, Donald Trump essentially ripped up a nuclear deal that was working, that was preventing Iran from getting a bomb, that was a multi-year ask of pro-Israel supporters and anti-nuclear weapon advocates to try to get a diplomatic arrangement with Iran because only one country can prevent Iran from getting a nuclear bomb, and that's Iran. They actually have to make that decision on their own. They have the technology, and they decided to not build the bomb, and it was verifiable. So right now we've got a, a, a Iran policy in free fall and no way out. And so we're watching a rising military activity in the Gulf, uh, the shooting down of an American surveillance craft, a potential 10 minutes away from American strikes into Iran that uh, is, we have to remember, a country three times the size of Iraq. So it's no cakewalk by any stretch. Uh, and, and, and there's no, there's no uh, clarity about how we're going to prevent a nuclear weapon getting into Iran's hands and how we're going to prevent a war. And, and my fear is, is that the policy here is being driven not by Donald Trump necessarily, but more by John Bolton and longtime traditional hawks on Iran who prefer regime change. Yet, you know, that's that's a policy to nowhere. And, and so we're not safer today on Iran, even though Iran does a lot of things we don't like and, and we should call them out on it and have. Uh, the Iran policy today is making us less safe. And can you explain as well, because Trump has said this was an Obama-Kerry deal. However, the Iran deal was with China, Russia, the EU, and it's not just an America thing. So I guess how this really hurts us abroad with our allies and people who really could help also stop Iran getting a deal. So, so Emily, you're, you're pointing out the, the magic of what happened in in. 2015 and, and leading up to that deal for years it was the united states alone and we would actually have israelis come to washington and say it can't just be america putting pressure on iran that won't work it has to be a global effort to prevent a iranian bomb and obama in 2009 essentially enacted multilateral sanctions with the support of everyone you just described the united nations 
Russia, China included in that, and they're not easy to get on board, uh, the European Union, to build a multilateral coalition of pressure that Iran essentially saw as a, a, a slam door on their ambitions. And they came to the table, and we got the deal years later. Right now, that's all broken. Uh, the United States, we left the deal. And so Iran is triangulating and playing us off of the Europeans and making maneuvers to scare Europe and, and saying that they want more resources uh, from the deal that, that we had agreed to. And, and so we're on our own. And that's the danger here is that there are real problems, as we, we talked about you know, with Iran in terms of their, their, their horrible activities in, in, in Iraq and Yemen and Lebanon, Syria in particular. But instead of working with our allies to corral Iran on those issues, we have pushed them away and made an issue, the nuclear deal, the nuclear weapons issue, something that was put to the side, come back to the front. And so now we're not dealing with any of the issues. And it might have been an Obama-Kerry final signature, but this was a long-standing bipartisan piece of work. Congressional legislation was bipartisan. Even President Bush tried to work the diplomatic route in, uh, unsuccessfully. But th this is not as if Obama and Kerry one night decided they're going to just cut a deal with Iran. This, this was, was uh, a long-standing American national security goal that had the support of our defense and State Department's and intelligence community and, and was really deep. And throwing it away is a real shame, and it's a real loss of American prestige and, uh, and effectiveness. You know, it's interesting that you brought up John Bolton because uh, when Bolton got appointed, um, I thought it was a terrifying appointment, probably the most terrifying appointment yet. Um, that's saying a lot, considering what this administration's comprised of. Um, but what it seems to me now is not so much that John Bolton is in charge of the parade, um, and in fact, you know, Donald Trump decides to go meet with Kim Jong-un in North Korea, and uh, John Bolton gets sent, literally gets sent to Mongolia. So I don't know how looped in John Bolton is, um, so much as this is just Trump undoing Obama's legacy. Um, I'm not sure that he's guided by the, by the hawks as much as he's guided by being the anti-Obama and everything. What are your thoughts on that? Well, he loves to undermine Obama's legacy every which direction he can do it. That, that's clear, being on health care, where uh, President Trump has taken away or tried to take away health care from Americans and not offered up any replacements at all. Uh, and, and in this case, on national security, if, if he can get rid of every deal that Obama did, it's a good day for him. It's just not a good day for the United States. There's another one on the horizon coming, uh, the New START agreement with Russia. And uh, that is to reduce our nuclear weapons and their nuclear weapons make us safer. He may walk from that. So you're right. I mean, the president has uh, chosen to be the opposite, so to speak, but it's a lot of show, not a lot of substance. So even on North Korea, where the president has engaged North Koreans directly, I think that's a good thing. I think that there can be potential there, but there's no follow through. There's no 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 next day negotiation, no piece of paper, no real substance to it. And that's What's very troubling and concerning is, is that in the case of Iran, there was a 400-ish page document put together meticulously by our top experts on nuclear issues and intelligence issues. We don't even have uh, a one-page agreed piece of paper with the North Koreans 
after three summits. So he may be the anti-Obama, but the anti-Obama without anything to benefit the United States. And and so you're right with Bolden. I just mentioned, you know, Bolden does have the ability to undermine the president's instincts. And, and I'll say the president on his instincts is to avoid getting trapped into wars. Let's say let's give him that on Iran or on North Korea. But on North Korea, the failed summit uh, in, in Vietnam, the second summit, in large part failed because of a maximalist position that the United States took that was driven by John Bolton, undermining the president at the table. I think the North Koreans have called him human scum, which is pretty hard. Well, pretty tough they call, they've called a lot of people a lot of things. So, <laughs> But, you know, he's um, he is organizing the national security work and the results are that we're isolated and we don't have deals on the most important pressing nuclear challenges uh, of the moment. And what's interesting to me is um, the complete disregard, as Emily pointed out, for our allies, especially in Western Europe, the complete condescension with which he treats the British government uh, as though they're kind of his lapdogs, this love-hate relationship with Macron, usually hate, and Merkel, and yet this complete passion, I don't know how else to describe it, for people like Vladimir Putin. Uh, Look, I remember when Obama was excoriated by right-wing media for telling uh, Medvedev that he would have more flexibility to work with Putin <laughs> after the election. And yet, have you ever seen anything like this? I mean, the party of Ronald Reagan is essentially kowtowing to the Russians, not just in election interference, but on, on virtually on everything. I've never seen the United States as a wingman to a dictator. <laughs> that's, a great, that's a great description. That's what we are. And, you know, it's not just Putin, obviously. It's... it's uh, you know, it's looking at, at, at uh, countries across the board, um, political factions uh, in the Philippines with with, with uh, Duterte. Looking at other parts, uh, other places around the world where there are. You look at Saudi Arabia as another prime example of covering for uh, the crown prince after he essentially, according to our intelligence commission, the cold-blooded execution of a journalist who was an American resident. So why is the president doing this? What What is it that he's getting out of it? And, and no one knows what he's discussed with Vladimir Putin in their multiple sit-downs for multiple hours. Uh, I don't think he's read the riot act to Putin about election meddling. He seems to think that's funny. Um, you know, that's not funny. Uh, but no, this is this is we are we are uh, our allies are looking at us and wondering if we're really an ally right now. Uh, that doesn't mean they look at us as an adversary, but there are spaces in between those two words. And uh, we have a system, though, fortunately, that's in place that's tough and that's holding the line in certain areas. But it's not for the president's attempts to 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 uh, go in the other direction. Yeah, you, know, you worked at the State Department. What do you think the morale is there now, for all for 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 the people who've been there a long time, the the, the real people who make the real trains run on time? Yeah, you know, Julie, I I worked at State for a number of years as a career officer in the Bush administration, and then I came back as a political appointee in the Obama administration. So. Seven years of my my life I've spent in that building, and I've been back for meetings and I've never seen it so desolate and depressed looking 
as uh, in this administration. And uh, it, it's it's sad to see. You know, I, I have former colleagues who walk the halls and you can see they just there's no guidance. Um, it's been depopulated of senior officials. We are devaluing in words the importance of American diplomacy and the White House's budgets are cutting our request for State Department funding by a third. So you walk around the state building, and if you know the building, you know where things are, you know where there are vital spots, people aren't out, people aren't walking around. And so decisions aren't being made. And uh, the net result is that diplomats who thrive on words and memos and access feel like they don't have any of that. They don't have guns. They don't have scientific experiments. They don't have the ability to influence uh, through physical means. It's, it's the words and the persuasion. And if you, you aren't able to even get the support of your leadership, you can't persuade your actual adversary or your ally to do something differently to advance American goals. And, and so it's, it's, a, it's very, very disappointing to see uh, how, how little we're utilizing the talents of people at the State Department. What's it going to take, uh, assuming this administration leaves in 2021, what's it going to take to rebuild? Is it, uh, do you think morale, not just at the State Department, but with our allies, could be restored with a different type of leadership immediately? Or do you think it'll take years and decades to potentially claw back from the last four years, the previous four years? So, you know, if you remember when Barack Obama came in in 2009, he went around and visited allies and was mocked by Republicans as doing an apology tour for America. What he actually was doing was uh, attempting to do what you just described, repair frayed ties. You know, it wasn't all um, sweets and treats. In the Bush administration, we were in the midst of the war in Iraq and we had burned a lot of bridges. But the lesson learned from that period is that it can be done and one can rebuild alliances. There's a lot of muscle memory around the world of support for the United States and, and positive interaction. But we can't take it for granted. And it's going to require people coming in in the next administration, if it's a Democratic one, and even if it's a Republican one. But I, I again, I'm doubtful about that in terms of who we would put in. But uh, people coming in with a uh, 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 not just a, a policy smarts, but a passion for the actual inner workings of the day-to-day -day operations and of, of respect for our allies. But we we are digging a hole big time because, again, going to diplomacy, the word is what matters. And the United States can't be consistently breaking diplomatic agreements as we did on Iran, as we did on the climate agreement with Paris, as we may do with the nuclear agreement with Russia and New START, we can't be consistently breaking our agreements and expect other countries to believe us when we say we want agreements in the future. And that's the real problem. It's sort of like the boy crying wolf. You know, how many times can we say we really mean it on diplomacy when the history doesn't show that? Oh, I just had a quick question about um, the, the face app. I don't know if you guys have heard about that. Oh, but yeah. it's the app that makes your face look old and it can change a couple things. But yesterday it was you saw all celebrities doing it from the Jonas Brothers to whoever. And and then all my friends seeing them post it then did one of themselves and posted on Instagram. But now it's we're seeing that Russia now owns a lot of when, when you accept the app now owns a lot of your pictures from Facebook and 
pretty much has free reign over them. And it's how, I guess, for a foreign policy-wise setting, do you protect against this kind of cyber breach of privacy? It, was that kind of the next frontier for you guys when you, were, when you were back at the State Department? And how is it now do you kind of protect yourself or get the word out about that? Um, there are a couple layers. There, there's, there's the policy layer, obviously, and then there's the private sector companies and, and how they engage in it. You know, when I was at State in the Obama administration, we too were victims of cyber attack. Um, the Chinese broke into and stole our, our files at, at the Office of Personnel Management, OPM, stole something like 20 million Americans' records uh, of their personnel files, which is frightening. Uh, to think that that my whole background uh, information is now sitting in in, in Beijing or, or elsewhere, and uh, we didn't get it right. I'm not gonna not gonna say that that we had it all done there. But what we did at a policy level was uh, have some offices dedicated to it, some infrastructure. The White House dedicated to cybersecurity, just on protecting at that level. Uh, that's been in many ways disbanded. Uh, in this administration, it's sort of surreal and and deeply troubling uh, to see how they've gotten rid of cyber uh, cyber protection leadership at the White House, it really diminished it and, and 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 making us vulnerable. But you know, a lot of the controversy now on Capitol Hill about Facebook and social media companies as well is really highlighting the role of the companies in this. You know, why is it that? Uh, Facebook is is enabling your face to be grabbed and then having, uh, uh, you know, how come there aren't the protections there as well? And, and so, um, yeah, I, I, I think I think we're, we're entering a new world. Uh, the deep fake videos coming up, you know, we were our election was hacked through cyber attack. Uh, this is real. And we we have not we have not uh, figured out a method at the policy level to fix it. I'll tell you a personal anecdote. One, one additional thing, I was actually in China in April on a trip and to enter the country at the airport, they scanned my face. They didn't just take a picture. They took a full facial scan. And if I hadn't agreed, I wouldn't have gotten in. On the way out at the airport, a machine scanned my face and literally immediately popped up right after that. My name on the screen telling me where to walk in the airport. Hmm. Deeply frightening stuff. And um, there are no controls governing it. And, and this goes to the, the bigger picture of the value where diplomacy could play a role. I don't know the technical answers to all of this, but let's say someone does. At that stage, if we have a real strong diplomatic core and a belief in diplomacy, we galvanize the international community. We go to the UN, we work with our allies, we work with the companies to create protocol protocol, and, and, and systems and standards for cybersecurity. That is how you get things done. You get people on board because this is not a US only issue. My fear is that right now, uh, we don't have the credibility with other countries to go to them and say, we want to make an agreement with you on cybersecurity. If anything, it's the opposite. And nor is anybody really pushing to do that, I assume. No, no, not at this stage. That's a shame. Right. So, well, what's not a shame is a kind of a transition here to two truths and a lie, Joel. Um, uh -oh. Can you, I guess, 
get Julie off of her game and maybe get me on my game because I'm terrible. I, Joel, I have to tell you, I have a near, I have an, actually, I used to have a perfect record and then a woman, an author from England uh, was here a few weeks ago and I realized British people really can bluff me in ways that Americans can't. So I would be, <laughs> so I want to bring back my streak at least of figuring out whether Americans, um, I can discern when they're lying to me or not. So go so, ahead. So does that mean, does that mean you have to get all of them right? No, I, or just two? I just, nope. I, you're going to tell me three things. One of them is going to be false and, you're, and you're, and we're going to figure out what Emily and I are going to guess which of the three things is false. So in... 2005, my wife and I were featured on Home and Garden Television fixing up a house in Washington, D.C. Okay. Number, that's number one. Okay. Number two, I flew a helicopter around the Statue of Liberty. And number three, I bungee jumped 80 meters off a bridge. Where was the bridge? Central America. <laughs> I'm going to say number three is not true. I'm because of that pause. I'm gonna go with that too. I will concur with Julie. Oh man, you don't think I'm cool? <laughs> I do think you're cool. Did you bungee I jump did, up? You did. I did bungee jump? Oh my god! Well, congratulations for being the first American who actually proved me wrong. Is it? <laughs> that's so cool. We're in we're in Central America. Uh, in Costa Rica. Oh, that's awesome. It, I, I was a Peace Corps volunteer down there, and we said let's go bungee jumping and of course in central america standards aren't quite the same as in the u.s so we're on this bridge it's sort of a little bouncy wow <laughs> over a riverbed about uh, about 100 meters down and uh jumped head first down 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 and then thank god the bungee well, I in college went cliff diving off a very high, similarly high cliff in Newport, Rhode Island, and that is still the dumbest thing I've ever done. <laughs> I, I do, so I, I bungee jumped as well, yeah. and I feel like as I was doing it, I was like, I'm an idiot, I'm an idiot, I'm an idiot. Those were my thoughts. <laughs> that was exactly my thought as I was, as I was going in the ocean. <laughs> Why did I kill myself? I know. Why? <laughs> well, I didn't even want to kill myself. I know. It was like, <laughs> my, my favorite part of this is, is that at the time, back in the day, uh, we had regular cameras, film cameras, I call it mm -hmm. regular cameras. And so I took out the film and I mailed it to my parents because that's what I would do. And they would develop the photos. And I got this urgent fax, if you can believe it, to an office where I worked. And it was from my father said, what are you doing hanging from a bridge? Because <laughs> my friend always would took pictures of me being pulled back up from the bridge. So, uh that was a fun way to tell them that I bungee jumped. So what so. was, what's, what's the lie? I never flew a helicopter around the Statue of Liberty. Yeah, me neither. Are you even allowed to fly a helicopter around the Statue of Liberty? Uh, military, military, uh, military choppers can do it, I think. Wow, that's but pretty cool. It sounds cool. cool, doesn't it? It does, actually. But we were, we were on HGTV, so on Home and Garden TV. Really? Curb, curb Appeal. Uh, we fixed up a a, 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 um, a row house here in D.C. in the city back in 2004, 2005. That's awesome. And Emily, we're em online. Emily's a huge um, reality show aficionado, so I'm surprised she hasn't I yet know. told me about Curb Appeal. Oh, man. Emily, check it out. Curb Appeal 2005. Victorian something or other. I forget. But um, my wife and I got stopped for like a year or two after it all the time at different like stores because I guess we're on reruns on airplanes or something. And uh 
and we, we look very different. So that's so cool. Joel, I am, we're going to let you go, but I would be remiss if I didn't mention that you and I worked, um, although not together. And I didn't know this until last week or two weeks ago with, uh, for Frank Lautenberg, Senator Lautenberg, who to this day remains my favorite all time boss. And I miss him tremendously. And I thought he was a great, um, Senator in ways that I, I wish more senators were. Um, so I think that's a wonderful thing that we share. And it's yeah, nice. it is. It is great, great uh, champion for uh, for United States, for Jewish community, for Israel, for uh, religious minorities uh, against guns, uh, against smoking. He he got things done, and he did it in a bipartisan way. Yet as a partisan fighter, and uh, we need a lot more of that. Yeah. No question about it. Joel Rubin, thank you so much for joining us. This was great. Um, And thank you so much for the foreign policy discussion because it's rare that we have somebody of your level doing that. Thanks, Thanks. Joel. Take care. Julie, what an incredibly insightful conversation. I certainly hope people learn something from that. Speaking of insightful, I would like to just leave you with a nugget that I um, learned today that HBO didn't submit Gwendolyn Christie, who played Brianna Torrance. Love the story so much. They didn't submit her for an Emmy, so she submitted herself and got a nomination. Like, that just shows you just be your own biggest cheerleader. And I got to tell you, I hope she wins because of the the three from Game of Thrones that were um, nominated, which was Maisie Williams, who was Arya Stark, um, Sophie Turner, who played Sansa Stark, and Gwendolyn Christie, as we talked about. I thought she did such incredible, they all did great work, but she just, to me, did such incredible work, um, especially this season, but over the past few seasons as well. And uh, I hope she wins. And shame on you, HBO. We know um, that you have to pick and choose among your favorites, but she really merited not just the nomination, I think she merits the win um, of the three of the Game of Thrones nominees in that category. I thought we just had to get our morale up before we say what we're salty about this week. And just, what are you salty about? Well, um, the former Mississippi Supreme Court Justice Bill Waller Jr., he's becoming the second Republican man running for Mississippi governor that said he won't meet alone with a woman who isn't his wife, even a reporter in a professional setting. This comes after uh, state rep Robert Foster said last week that if a woman journalist wanted to ride in his truck for campaign coverage... She would have to be chaperoned by a male colleague. It's like it's like Saudi Arabia. It's like Sharia law that they all scream I, about. I don't understand. Female reporters can't do their job. It's it it's making me extremely salty that they can't trust themselves, or it's somehow religiously based. Give me a break. Well, what is it? Is it, is it the the Billy Graham rule? That's that's what they were yeah, saying. Yeah, that basically um, you don't even want the implication. You want to be tempted by. I don't know, Eve or whatever, some weirdo biblical analogy, um, tempted by the apple. So control yourself. Believe me, um, we can control ourselves around you, so you should be able to control yourselves around us. Um, And secondly, to me, I can't help but think this is the negative byproduct of what they're using the Me Too movement for, which is, oh, you know, everybody's filing sexual harassment lawsuits now, everybody's accusing everybody of bad stuff, so I'm not gonna put myself in that situation by being alone with a woman. Guess what? It's not an issue. So calm down. And nobody's going to falsely accuse you of anything if you don't do anything. So just calm down um, and just relax. Women have a job to do the same as men. And I can only imagine if uh, Elizabeth Warren 
or Kamala Harris or Hillary Clinton when she ran or any other female candidate said, oh, wait a second, I can't have reporters interviewing me one-on-one. God forbid, I mean, I can't have Matt Lauer interviewing me. I can't have whoever because he's a man and I'm a woman. And the outcry would be spectacular if roles were reversed. In fact, maybe we should do that. Maybe we should call for every single, right. every single woman in Mississippi or Missouri or wherever they're from um, to not grant any access to any men and be alone with them under any circumstances and any business dealings because uh, obviously the men can't control themselves. I would love that because women reporters are kicking ass. The, it was the no female question. from the Miami Herald who broke the Epstein she thing. She was so good. She was badass. That, that was a clinic on reporting. Which brings me to what makes me so salty. Uh, we've known this all along, but there are really two justice systems in this world. This guy, this predator, raped, and I can't, I, you know, <laughs> the euphemisms that people use, he you know, had inappropriate sexual relations with a 12, non-consensual, you know, or... or relationships with a 12-year-old, if you're a 14-year-old, if you're having sex with a 14-year-old or a 12-year-old and you're an adult, that's called rape. That's not called non-consensual or consensual. It's, It's rape. Call it what it is. But anyway, the point is, this guy gets sprung essentially from real prison time, gets to go on work release for 16 hours a day to his swank office in Palm Beach, where apparently he continued to rape Young girls. Um, while he's supposed to be in prison, he's still raping women. Um, what's so unjust to me about this is, imagine if this were the average Joe Blow, or imagine if this were, the, imagine if this were some black guy. It wouldn't happen. Um, never. They'd lock him up and throw away the key. Meanwhile, this guy who's worth X number of millions of billions of dollars, I don't know what he's really worth, nobody really knows, gets to go to prison that's not really prison. Uh, to me, it's just so appalling. And these women who are brave enough to come forward, um, there's this heartbreaking story uh, from a Vanity Fair reporter that she had a mother and two daughters go on the record to her. Um, and, and Vanity Fair about Jeffrey Epstein raping the daughters. And Jeffrey Epstein somehow got this killed. Graydon Carter, then the editor of Vanity Fair, excluded that from the profile of Jeffrey Epstein. So these women... These girls and their mother actually went on the record, um, took a massive risk to themselves by doing that, and, and the media conspired, public officials conspired, law enforcement conspired. It's just such a scandal, and I feel like it's just demoralizing because it's not just Jeffrey Epstein. They're, they're I mean, look how long for the Weinstein stuff it took and how much of that was buried until the stories actually got out. It's awful. It's awful. And uh, you'd think... Um, it kind of tie bars to your discussion about uh, tie bars to your discussion about reporters not female reporters not being allowed in with politicians who are men. Um, same thing. I mean, this it's such a struggle. I mean, we're we're living in 2019. You think that we would have achieved just basic. And it's somehow Justice. making women less than by, by Always, not consistently. Because somehow we're now the predators of trying to like put you in an uncomfortable yeah. situation. Like, give me a break. By, by the way, weirdo politicians who don't want to be alone with women, starting with you, Mike Pence. Um, who calls his wife mother, mother. Like, you're not that irresistible, dude. We can control ourselves around you. We're not some sex crazed women who are either there to seduce you, um, P.S. If you don't want to be seduced, you're not going to be seduced. And secondly, we're not there to levy false allegations against you. All we want to do is do our job. And it's when you prevent us from doing our job 
that problems really start to arise um, because it's, it's retaliatory. And at this point, this man, these two men are not allowing women to interview them alone purely because of their gender. I mean, it's, I don't know. It's, if there's not a law about that, there should be. Um, because right now, what these men are pretty much doing is exactly what people in Saudi Arabia are doing. You can't ride alone with a, with a man in a car unless it's your husband or your brother. Um, so for all those crazies who think Sharia law is coming to this country, guess what, my friends? Your own party is foisting it on the rest of us. In summation, Brianna Tarth needs to win an Emmy. <laughs> Amen. All right, everybody. Have a great week.